I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have another perspective on Nagorno-Karabakh. This time, Alfred Desaius, the UN independent expert on international order from 2012 to 2018, joins us to give his take on the persecution of Armenians who are fleeing from Nagorno-Karabakh as Azerbaijan sets to officially take over the region, putting the Republic of Artsakh to an end. Alfred will be tackling this topic from both a historical context as well as a human rights and international law perspective, and I hope you find the conversation enlightening. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Alfred Desaius. A note that this conversation was edited very slightly for the sake of brevity. Welcome back to Parallax Used. Alfred Desaius, law professor at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and a former UN independent expert on international order from 2012 to 2018. How are you doing, Alfred? I'm doing very well. I was just swimming in Lake Geneva an hour ago. And it's gorgeous weather. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Uh, if 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 we could, I wanted to have you on the show to talk about the recent uh, events in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, we see Armenians fleeing the region now. And uh, maybe you could just give your general assessment of what has happened. Well, as you have read uh, in the news, approximately 100,000 um, Armenians from uh, the Republic of Artsakh, which is the actual name of this uh, region of Nagorno-Karabakh, 
uh, have actually fled. Why have they fled? Because they have very bad experiences under Azerbaijan. And I'm not talking about the blitzkrieg of 2020 or uh, all the abuses that they um, suffered in the uh, Soviet times. Don't forget, the Armenians have occupied, have lived, have cultivated uh, these valleys for 3,000 years. Now, uh, when the territory was uh, occupied by the Muslims, by the Seljuk uh, Turks, and then by the Ottoman Turks, uh, the uh, Armenians were a Christian minority. As people of the book, there was a certain tolerance uh, about them. But uh, in the 19th century, it became uh, very dangerous to be a Christian in uh, the Ottoman Empire. And between 1915 and uh, 1923, about 1.5 million Armenians uh, were victims of a genocide. Now, the Armenians used to live uh, in large parts of Turkey, large parts of the Pontos. Uh, they uh, were expelled into the desert. Uh, in uh, uh, Syria, where they died by the thousands, they were directly massacred as part of the uh, genocide that was planned uh, by the uh, Ottoman uh, Empire because they wanted to make uh, the Ottoman Empire purely Muslim. And uh, it's not only the Armenians who suffered enormous losses, but also the uh, uh, Greeks uh, of Pontos, uh, the uh, Chaldeo-Assyrians, in total about an additional million uh, were killed in these years, and not only by the Ottoman Empire, but also by the Kemalist Turkey after uh, 1919. So you have here a consistent pattern of genocide, uh, and then this territory that remained um uh in uh, the area uh of uh, the Caucasus uh the area of Ararat the area of Nagorno-Karabakh uh part of it became the Soviet uh Socialist Republic of Armenia but um uh, for a number of reasons uh administrative uh primarily uh Lenin and Stalin put them under the yoke uh, of the Assetis. Now, the Assetis committed God knows how many abuses on them for decades and decades and decades. So it's understandable uh, that when the Soviet Union collapsed, that all Armenians uh, wanted to have their state and they wanted to be independent, uh, not only of the Soviet Union, but also independent uh, of uh, Azerbaijan. They fought a war, they won that war uh, against um, uh, Azerbaijan, but unfortunately they didn't pick up, I mean, keep up defenses. So they were quite vulnerable. And I, I was going to say, could the international community have taken a different tact uh, when the Soviet Union felt when it came to dealing with issues like I the Armenians and Azerbaijan uh, and the tensions there? There's a considerable uh, level of hypocrisy, of uh, selectivity, 
of double standards uh, in the United Nations and outside the United Nations in the media, whether it be the Western uh, corporate media, what we term as uh, mainstream media, uh, or even uh, academics that are sold out, as the case may be, uh, if there ever was a case for the so-called doctrine of responsibility to protect, this was it. I mean, uh, the international community should have protected Armenians from ethnic cleansing, and um, they didn't. Uh, the uh, General Assembly did not adopt a resolution immediately like they did in the case of um, Russia's illegal aggression against Ukraine. But here there's a major uh, difference. The case of Nagorno-Karabakh is a case of self-determination. Self-determination is anchored in the UN Charter. Articles 1, 55, the whole of Chapter 11, the whole of Chapter 12, all deals with self-determination. Then the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights codifies it as use Kogan's as really a peremptory rule of international law, which takes priority over uh, so-called territorial integrity. Read paragraph eight of the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice of 2010 on uh, Kosovo. Very clear, the principle of territorial integrity is inferior to the right of self-determination of peoples. And if there come in tension between the two, it is self-determination that takes it. That, of course, is theory. <laughs> the theory of international law and the practice of international law is uh, totally different. Uh, because, as I say, geopolitical uh, games are being played, and there's a very high level of bad faith and a very high level of uh, hypocrisy in the Human Rights Council, in the General Assembly. There's a lot of bullying by the United States, a lot of blackmail, a lot of uh, pressures. Uh, and uh, this game now in Nagorno-Karabakh is a geopolitical game. I think it is absolutely outrageous. It is uh, highly criminal and genocidal uh, for Azerbaijan to launch uh, a blitzkrieg in uh, 2020 against uh, the civilian population of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh that was not threatening anybody. I mean, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, just look at the map, does not pose a uh, any kind of threat uh, to um, Azerbaijan. Put yourself in the position of the population of Nagorno-Karabakh. They have suffered for decades and decades under the uh, Azeris. They don't want to live on the Azeris. And uh, what since they have now, by force, they have been bombarded. The Panikert was uh, heavily bombarded, uh, not only in 2020, now, in September 2023. Well, yeah, they uh, were blocking food from getting in. Yeah, right? uh, which, by the way, is a massive violation uh, of the um, uh, uh, Geneva Conventions, the Geneva 
conventions of uh, 1949 and the 1977 additional protocols. On top of it, on top of it, it is falls within the definition of genocide. It's uh, Article 3, little c of the uh, Geneva, uh, rather the Genocide Convention of 1948, because Azerbaijan was imposing uh, conditions of life that led to the destruction of the people. Now, why are the people fleeing? I mean, no one leaves his homeland unless he feels very threatened. Now, right. I, I was going to say, because the, the Azeri line that we keep hearing in the media, uh, very shamefully, is this idea of, uh, oh, uh, they're leaving voluntarily. No, they're leaving because they're afraid, given past history, of what the Azeri regime has afraid. done. They have very good reason to be afraid. But what is irresponsible of the media is to accept this absolutely uh, absurd argument by the Azeris uh, that they will take good care of them. Uh, it, it's completely ridiculous. Don't forget that the uh, Christians have suffered pogroms, same as the Jews suffered pogroms uh, in uh, Poland and in Ukraine and in Russia throughout the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh population suffered pogroms under uh, the Azeris. So they have had enough. Probably no one remembers that in 1955, there was a big pogrom in Istanbul. I mean, this hatred of uh, the Turks against the Christians, and in particular against the Armenians, uh, has a long, long history. This is a publication of the University of Toronto, uh, Genocide Studies uh, and Prevention. Uh, I wrote the first article in English on this so-called Setembriana, that was the pogrom uh, of September 1955, which essentially destroyed <laughs> the Armenian and the Greek uh, uh, minority in uh, Istanbul, after which they actually left. They all left. Uh, because having been, having had, you know, all of their shops destroyed, very similar to the Kristallnacht of uh, 1938 in, in Nazi Germany. In Nazi Germany, Jewish shops were smashed. And it's called Kristallnacht because all of the windows were smashed. Well, uh, the same thing happened. Uh, to the uh, Armenians and to the um, uh, Greeks of uh, Istanbul. And so the Greek minor uh, minority of Istanbul, the Armenian minority of Istanbul that had been very, very much present for centuries, uh, finally decided to leave because of their own uh, necessity to survive. Another example of Turkish uh, abuses against Christian minorities is of course Cyprus. Who remembers Cyprus? 1974, uh, Prime Minister Ecevit of uh, Turkey attacked uh, um, uh, Cyprus and they expelled huh? ethnic cleansing, classical ethnic cleansing. They expelled 200,000 Greek Cypriots 
from the north where their ancestors had lived for 5,000 years. And they got away with it. No one was ever indicted. Now, we have now an international... And, and I was going to say, of course, we also have the, the Armenian Genocide of 1915. You know, of course, here, the crime of science. This is the report of the uh, Permanent Tribunal of Peoples. Uh, and they held a um, hearings and uh, came out with a judgment. Uh, on the genocide of the Armenians. This was back in uh, uh, 1984 with very, very high uh, participants like uh, Pierre Vidal-Naguet with my uh, boss, uh, uh, Professor Theo van Bolen, uh, who um, hired me into the United Nations, etc. Uh, in any event, that's part of the problem, silence. The, uh, the media has failed in its watchdog uh, function. The media has not alerted uh, the people of the United States and Canada and France and Germany, et cetera, uh, that uh, here a genocide took place, the first genocide in the 20th century committed by the Ottoman Empire. At that time, of course, the word genocide didn't exist. Uh, that was created by uh, Raphael Lemkin uh, in 1944, but uh, it was a crime against humanity. And uh, when the Brits and the uh, French uh, and the Russians um, learned about uh, the ongoing massacres against the Armenians throughout uh, Turkey at the time, throughout the Ottoman Empire, they called it a crime against humanity and warned the Sultan that those responsible would uh, be um, held accountable. So take that into account. There is, of course, civil liability to make reparation to the victims, but there is also penal liability. And when I'm talking about penal liability, obviously everybody will think of the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which has been operating since the year 2002. But hitherto, the only people who have been tried have been Africans. So it has a very uh, bad uh, record. Uh, and uh, although there have been any number of referrals to the International Criminal Court to do investigations and indictments uh, against George W. Bush, against uh, Tony Blair, against uh, Paul Wolfowitz, all who were involved in the illegal and I'm saying illegal because my boss, Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the United Nations, called the Iraq War illegal. Uh, those who participated uh, in the aggression of Iraq in 2003 and whose forces, NATO forces, committed uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity in Iraq and in Afghanistan and subsequently in uh, Libya and in Syria, et cetera, et cetera, they have all... Uh, had impunity. So the International Criminal Court has like zero authority and zero credibility. Why has zero credibility? Because it has been a tool. It's been a political tool of lawfare against uh, enemies or rivals uh, of the United States and of what might be termed the collective West. So 
forget the ICC. The ICC is not going to indict uh, President uh, Ilham uh, Aliyev uh, of Azerbaijan. It's not going to um, indict uh, Recep uh, Erdogan of, of Turkey. Uh, they're both rogue states, but the media tolerates them. Before we start closing up, uh, two things I wanted to get into. I, I wanted you to respond to some of these lines that we're hearing from uh, the media. And I, I think you dealt with it in a recent interview with BBC where uh, an interviewer said to you, well, you know, uh, the Republic of Artsakh wasn't recognized uh, by the international community as being Ar Armenian territory. How do you respond to people that try to bring up that point? Uh, because I think it ignores exactly the issue of self-determination. A failure of the United Nations and a failure of the international community. Because international law, by definition, is universal. By definition, applies to everybody. I mean, you cannot pick and choose. And you cannot say, I will allow self-determination in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, in Slovenia, in Croatia, in Bosnia, Herzegovina, in Kosovo, but I will not allow it in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, these people have exactly the same right to independence uh, as the Slovenians, exactly the same right as the Croatians. And they fought a war. They declared themselves uh, uh, independent already, in uh, 1991, and they and they asked for, you know, for the United Nations to help them conduct a self-determination uh, referendum. Here, the United Nations, like so often, failed the Armenians and failed the world. I mean, uh, it would have been, if you think in terms of uh, international uh, peace and security. Uh, if you think in terms of preventive conflict, uh, obviously conducting self-determination referenda after the Soviet Union uh, collapsed uh, would have been a must. Now, there's a principle that uh, if you don't want to live together anymore, uh, a people can demand self-determination. As I said, the self-determination can be in a federal state. If you have guaranteed rights uh, as a federal state and you have autonomy, that will satisfy uh, the right of self-determination. Uh, the other option, of course, is secession. But in the case of Azerbaijan, in the case of its many decades of crimes against the Armenian people. Well, obviously, uh, there's something called remedial secession. Uh, if there was a, a, a an instance where remedial secession was necessary in the case of the Armenians. And uh, let me pose a rhetorical question uh, those who uh, say, oh, they're not recognized. Uh, well, uh, Kosovo has a lot of recognitions, uh, but it's not a member of the United Nations, and it's not going to be a member of the United Nations anytime soon. But can you imagine, here comes a rhetorical question, can you imagine for a moment what the 
reaction of the international community would be if Serbia decided it was going to take back its old province uh, of Kosovo by force of arms. Imagine, I mean, uh, that would not be tolerated, not one day. NATO would go and bomb the hell out of Belgrade uh, if uh, that were to happen. I'm not saying it's a good thing to bomb uh, uh, Serbia, not at all, because I am basically a pacifist and I believe that the function of the United Nations is to facilitate, to mediate, to uh, prevent uh, conflict. But in order to prevent conflict, you have to be ready to accept a compromise. And the compromise here would have been simply expand the Lachen uh, corridor so that you can have uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Armenia, recognized as a province of Armenia, with a direct lifeline from uh, Armenia. That would have been entirely feasible. But again, we are suffering from cognitive warfare. We are suffering from, uh, shall we say, not only an information war, uh, it is guerrilla uh, tactics of fake news and fake history. Uh, what you read sometimes in the New York Times uh, or in the Washington Post or in CNN about um, Armenia or about uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is wrong, or at least woefully incomplete. Right, right. Well, well it's like, like I said, you see all these claims, oh, it's not an ethnic cleansing. I mean, it sure seems like one, but, you know, I guess don't believe your lying eyes. Well, no, they, 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 they are apologists. I mean, uh, we have known apologists of the Nazis. We've known apologists uh, of apartheid. We've known apologists uh, of uh, of Israel. I mean, there's nothing new. Uh, now, another uh, outrageous rhetorical question. What would the reaction of the international community be if a future right-wing nationalistic populistic uh, German government decided that they were going to take back by force of arms their provinces of East Prussia, Pomerania, Silesia, East Brandenburg, uh, that had been German for about 700 years. I mean, the ancestors uh, of uh, 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 of Gunther Grass, for instance, the late uh, Nobel Prize winner in uh, literature, uh, was from Danzig. And the other German um, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Gerhard Hauptmann, uh, was from Silesia. And, uh, well... Uh, there is a glorious history uh, of musicians and philosophers, Immanuel Kant from uh, Königsberg, from East Prussia, uh, associated with these territories. Centuries of German presence uh, in um, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Now, would a right-wing German government uh, be able to attack Poland and take this territory back. That is basically what Aliyev is doing, uh, taking a territory 
that was not even, I mean, it, it was, shall we say, formally uh, Azeri, not because the population was Azeri, but because, uh, unfortunately, Stalin, who did many, many bad things, uh, Stalin gave this uh, territory that was uh, Armenian for thousands of years, gave it to Azerbaijan. It's, yeah, Stalin did another biggie. I don't know whether you're familiar with the suffering of the people of Abkhazia. Abkhazia, 250,000 people. Uh, Abkhazia used to be uh, a an independent autonomous uh, entity in Tsarist Russia. And then it used to be a Soviet socialist republic in the Soviet Union. But then Stalin decided, oh, let's do away with it and let's incorporate Abkhazia into Georgia. Why? They're not the same ethnic group. They're, they don't speak the same language. Uh, they have nothing to do with each other. It is a completely artificial union. And of course, it's understandable that when the Soviet Union collapsed, that the uh, people of, uh, of uh, Abkhazia said, forget it. You know, we don't have, want to have anything more to do with uh, Georgia. Georgia treats us like a colony and we would we're not part of uh, of Georgia. We're not Georgians. So they declared their independence. That led to a war uh, in uh, 1992, 1993, which the Abkhazians won. And um, you know the rest of the story when Saakashvili, who was inspired by the United States, go on, take uh, Southern Ossetia, take it by force. And of course, in the process, they killed any number of uh, Russian peacekeepers. And Putin said, that's one too many, huh? I'm not going to put up with that. So he mopped it up. And, uh, and Southern Ossetia uh, had had its referendum, and they didn't want to have anything to do with Georgia. Abkhazia had its referendum, doesn't want to have anything to do with Georgia. Nagorno-Karabakh had its referendum, doesn't want to have anything to do uh, with Azerbaijan, and the world does not give a damn. I, I was going to say, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up on that note. I wanted to just ask you one last question. I was going to say, uh, you know, I feel like we look the other way on Nagorno-Karabakh. I, I feel like we've looked the other way on Western Sierra, another topic I know you're familiar with. Uh, if, if, if you were in charge, or if you could advise the U.S. or even at the U.N. someone like Antonio Guterres, uh, what they could do uh, in this situation. What 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 can be done to help the Armenian people uh, that are fleeing this region now? Well, immediately, humanitarian aid. And the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has a function. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has a function. I wrote to Antonio Guterres, to the president of the Human Rights Council, to the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, making a proposal that there be an urgent special session of the Human Rights Council on Nagorno-Karabakh that should deal with all the legal issues 
also with the humanitarian issues, because they this has created a humanitarian catastrophe. People are not counting dead bodies, but there have been plenty. I mean, uh, there were deaths from uh, uh, hunger already weeks ago because of the blockade, an illegal blockade, the same as the blockade of Gaza by Israel is illegal. So uh, uh, I have made the proposals, but nothing is moving. I mean, this proposal is not, shouldn't be put forward by a former United Nations rapporteur. I mean, this proposal should be put forward by uh, the government uh, of France, by the government of Brazil, by the government of South Africa, and say, we're not going to tolerate this, and we are not going to tolerate the fact that uh, human rights is being applied a la carte. And that is the reason why my book, uh, which came out uh, recently, uh, three months ago, my book, uh, Building uh, a Just World Order, followed by the human rights industry. Human rights industry, Clarity Press, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Now, this book shows the hijacking of the uh, human rights system of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, of the Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees, of um, the International Criminal Court, of the Organization for the um, Prevention, uh, rather for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. They have all been hijacked. And they're all in the service of Washington and Brussels. I mean, accepted. That is the situation. That's why I say, although uh, President Ilham Aliyev has committed aggression, war crimes, and crimes against humanity against the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, he's not going to be indicted, I assure you. And uh, the Human Rights Council is going to look the other way. They are not going to uh, call a special session, although this would be a classical situation to call a special session. And maybe, maybe uh, some countries uh, of the non-aligned movement will put forward a uh, resolution of the Human Rights Council uh, to provide humanitarian assistance uh, to Nagorno-Karabakh. At least that should happen. And on this sad note, I have to leave you because I have to give another interview now. And thank you again for coming on the show, Alfred DeSeas. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Alfred DeSeas. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm 
I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.